the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social values. We talk about the dignity of the human person, the importance of work, We talk about the values of family, solidarity across the globe, and we talk about all of those things that foster human dignity, the sanctity of life, the quality of life. All of those things are part of what we use as the prism through which we look at very contemporary and sometimes very volatile topics. Uh, Today, we're going to be speaking about one of those issues that is a worldwide phenomenon, the phenomena of whatever we want to call, however we want to phrase it, displaced persons, refugees, that the world is now experiencing, it may be close to 100 million displaced persons from all of the continents. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but just to kind of set the stage a little bit, um, displaced persons are people who are forced to leave where they live, their homes, for a variety of reasons. We kind of divide those individuals into two different categories, and those who move within their own country to another part of their country, you know, technically they are referred to as internally displaced people. So somebody went from one part of the country to another. I'll give you an example right now. Some of the people who are fleeing from the eastern part of Ukraine, they're going to the western part of Ukraine. So they are displaced from their own homes, but they're staying within the Ukraine. However, then there are those other millions who have to leave their own country. So they cross a border. And again, going back to the example of Ukraine, that there are millions who have left Ukraine to go to neighboring countries. The majority of those who have left um, have gone to Poland, majority, in other words, a plurality of people in Poland. There are others in Romania, uh, Slovakia, and other places. So that is a phenomenon that we are dealing with in the world. But what we're going to speak about with our first guest in just a few moments, is um, the situation in the Western Hemisphere. We sometimes don't realize the extent of people who are fearing for their lives and violence, persecution, um, economic disaster in our own hemisphere who are being uh, displaced. And right now, the crisis uh, country is Venezuela. And Venezuela has millions of people who have fled the country, given the political and economic situation that is in that country. So um, we are going to be speaking with uh, Antonio Fernandez, who is the president and the CEO of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of San Antonio, about the experience of immigrants, refugees, because basically most of those coming from Central and South America are coming into Texas 
from the border that is there, some into, um, into Arizona and some of the other countries, but they are also uh, primarily going into Texas. And I know Antonio and his people have been on the front line. So I'm just so grateful that he has, is taking the time to share with you, our listeners, what his experience is going on um, in there. Uh, Antonio Fernandez, President, Executive Director, Executive CEO of Catholic Charities of and Antonio, thank you for being with us again on Just Club. Thanks for joining us, Antonio. Uh, good morning, Monsignor. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, and I, I realize that how busy you are. So let me just say an extra word of thanks for your taking the time to um, to uh, to be with us on on Just Love. Um, you know, could you just maybe for our listeners, just give us a little bit of an overview of what's going on in the flow of migrants into Texas at the moment? And I know that is a huge question, but I, I, I ask the question because, you know, we hear so many different things and people say so many different uh, things. We know COVID interrupted it. We know federal policy is critically, critically important. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about what your experience is of the, the situation that's going on in Texas at the moment? At the moment, well, things change constantly of the people coming through the border to, uh, to San Antonio, to Texas. But lately has been a massive amount of people from Venezuela coming through the border. Um, I mean, and I'm talking about thousands of people every day. A year ago, we may have had 10 to 20. Now it's just most of the people crossing what I would think legally until they meet Border Patrol or ICE, um, actually people from Venezuela. Still people from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Colombia, Haiti, there's tons of people still coming. So it's a massive amount of people coming to the United States looking for the American dream, looking for a way out because they have no options in the countries. And I think that is the basic thing that unifies all these people's um, desires to come here is because they have nothing where they come from. And they really believe that America is the place for them to come to work, to live, and to have a, a life. So... Um... Are they have what do you attribute the the kind of the surge of people that have been coming because um, <clears throat> the situation in Venezuela has been pretty pretty bad for a number of years. Correct. So most of the people coming from Venezuela, they are actually not coming from Venezuela per se. They've been in other countries for one or two years. And when they feel that it's safe to come to the US, when they feel like now they will be allowed to come into the U.S. That's what they're giving up their lives in other countries to come north to the U.S. And that is something that is happening a little more in the last maybe um, nine months or 10 months than it happened in 2020 or early 2021. Uh, so we, where have they been, what, from your experience, where have they been, uh, been staying? So mostly Colombia. I think people from Venezuela were in Colombia, many of them are working, trying to make ends meet, and then, then just start coming north. But um, 
they had not per se been in Venezuela for all this time and now they decided to leave Venezuela. It has been a long process for them. Like it has been for many other people as well. Ah, so they're and and so they can they've been in Co- Colombia for a while and now they're making their way to the United States. Correct. Now I know you hinted at this a little bit. Um but why now do you think they're they're coming to the United States? I mean, this is not a political issue for Catholic Church, as you know more than I do. For us, it's a humanitarian issue. However, many of these people, it's true, they have seen the news and they have in the countries uh, the perception that now it's, it's safe to come to the U.S., that they will be welcome in the U.S., not like it was with the previous administration. Okay. Okay. And... Um... So give our listeners a little bit, and I, I mean, I know some of the answer to, to this, but how are you able to respond in Catholic Charities in, in San Antonio? Uh, well, I think it's uh, a similar Catholic Charities than most of the country, where we welcome the strangers. Regardless of where people come, if they get to our doors, we will try to fit them and clothe them and provide them with housing. So in San Antonio, we are blessed to have a great archdiocese in which our leader, Archbishop Gustavo, actually supporting our efforts to provide for anyone who walks through the door of Catholic Church. So we have many different issues with immigration in our diocese, in our Catholic Church, from people from Ukraine uh, who have already arrived to the U.S. to um, over 2,200 people from Afghanistan, or people actually are crossing the border from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, that have a special status, and we have shelters for them. And then now we have the migrants coming through the southern border who are given to us by border patrol or ICE. And that's a, another you know, kind of service that we provide to them. For this, which is now the, the big news, because we have, around, um, we have now a hotel where we have around 190 beds, 190, I'm sorry, rooms for these people, providing with hotel rooms, tickets to go to many parts in the United States, wherever they want to, as well as providing with legal advice, counseling, case management, clothing, food, whatever it is. So when they're in San Antonio, we can provide to them a little bit of comfort and warmth. Antonio, I'm going to state the obvious. Um, It is incredible, wonderful work, great response that you are making. But the demand must be overwhelming to your capacity to meet the demand. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, we will be opening right now. We have an agreement to open a new shelter for up to a thousand migrants daily. Uh, we are planning to open it in mid-August as we speak. Um, is that enough? Not even close. You know, we have thousands of people speak at the, sleep at the airport in San Antonio every night at the bus station. There are people in the streets. So San Antonio is one of those big cities in, in the Texas, in South Texas, where it's very close to the border, so many, many people come here. So uh, it's just up, but we don't have enough. We, we can't. We don't have enough resources, but at least we're trying as much as we can. And, so and if- Antonio, for listeners throughout the country, yep. you said uh, San Antonio is close to the border. About how many miles or how, how far is it for by car? How far is it from the border? Three hours away by car. So in the Archdiocese of San Antonio in Catholic Church, we actually opened a new office in the border town called Del Rio, 
where you may remember last October, there was 14,000 people from, from Haiti under a bridge. So uh, I, 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 it was just horrible to see what I was able to see of you know, people under a bridge. Um, so now we have an office to provide people services in that town and that's right at the border. And is that part of the Diocese of San Antonio? Yes. So you go to the border? Correct. Now, there's another part which is impacting us in in New York and in Washington, Um, D.C. What is it? I mean, we hear is is the government of Texas. And I know we're not we're just talking facts and we're not we're talking just the experience of what's going on. Is the government of Texas kind of providing bus tickets or buses for people to Washington, D.C.? Um, I believe that in Del Rio, there is a company who may have an agreement with a government entity, and as so it is the federal government or the state of Texas, because I hear both things, but there is a company that just sending daily people to Washington, D.C. Uh, and are they, can, is it like a chartered bus or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, think about Texas right now and and we have been involved in a couple of other major issues as the trailer where 53 people died because of heat. Mm-hmm. But if you are in that situation where you are an immigrant, you cross the border, they let you out, ice or border patrol, now you are in the street with nothing. And there's tons of people like that. So if someone is offering you a ride to a city like Washington, D.C., where you have more resources, you are an immigrant, you are in the street with 105 degrees, you're going to say yes to an AC bus, that is promising you going closer to wherever you want to go. So yeah. people are taking those passes on a daily basis. Yes, and um, and when they get to the other places, there's really not much of a plan that they they have. They just are getting off the bus. Correct. So for us, is uh, we have major communication with many Catholic charities in the country. I mean. Uh, we understand now the system. The system is flawed, in my opinion, and that's just my opinion. Yeah. Imagine in Catholic Church, New York City, you have a thousand people coming every day, new people every day. So you're going to get to a point that you're going to have a month later, it's 30,000 people. What are you doing with 30,000 people? So if those people want to go someplace else, then you're going to do whatever it is possible to you send them to the final destination with the family members. That's what we are doing in San Antonio. So this is just... It's crazy. This is absolutely crazy. So for us, you know, Steve is the president of Catholic Church in Portland, Maine, who, you know, we have people from Haiti or Congo, they love to go to Portland. I speak to, to Steve, say, Steve, FYI, 300 people are coming your way. Same thing with Boston, same thing with Baltimore. Whatever it is, we try to make contacts with the Catholic charities to let them know there's going to be a nice chunk of people going to your city, you know, and we're referring them to your legal services, to your food pantry, to your clothing rooms, whatever it is, but Monsignor, I don't think there is an end way for this and things are going to get worse. I'm sorry to say that. Yeah, it it is, it is, you know, overwhelming. I mean, what I have, uh, you know, said periodically, and I know everybody kind of has said this, is what this is, is the result of decades of us, our inability to create a good legal immigration system. The, you know, how do we allow people in generously and fairly? 
How do we protect the borders? How do we do this? But we haven't had any immigration reform for decades. We can't because of the unfortunate uh, divisive partisan situation that we're in. And uh, I hate to say it this way, but we shouldn't be surprised that um, that we now have a crisis which is overwhelming. Correct. And I agree 100% with you. And my question to people has been, what happens with Title 42 goes away? Right. So if we open the borders 100%, which I'm not saying is the right thing or the wrong thing to do, and that's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm asking, it's like, what, what is the plan? Because I don't know of any plan. And right. if San Antonio right now is a major entity in this migrant, you know, uh, <laughs> migration in the U.S., we, we have no idea what's going on. But if it's hard for us to send people to different cities, and I've told you in New York City, New York has to be hard to understand that we have hundreds of people coming. Where are we sending those people in a month or two months or three months from now? Because the shelters through the country are completely now full. We have right. homeless people in the cities, and I understand that, but we have no place to send these people. So I, I really don't know. And if Tado Polito goes away, I think we're going to have um, serious issue and we need to have effective communication through the country to provide services to these people, to these human beings. And do is there, now I know Title 42, and for our listeners who may not know what that means, uh, would you explain to our listeners, Antonio, what Title 42 is? Um, the previous administration um, put some policies into place to ensure the health, uh, safety of the, the country in which if you have some COVID symptoms or health symptoms, you were able to be detained in, at the border on the, on the country where you're coming from. So that was a way to eliminate uh, people to get into the country. Um, I mean, it's just, it makes sense to some degree, but it doesn't make sense in some degrees as well. I mean, you know, if you are sleeping in what they call the yeleras at the border, you are sleeping on the floor. Uh, you know, I will get a call within 24 hours. I mean, I will be, you know, like have caffeine or things like that. Well, if caffeine is a symptom of COVID, you are denied the entrance to the U.S. So now if that goes away, then we will have a lot more people coming to the, to the U.S. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. I mean, I don't know, elections are happening this year in November, I believe. Um, so this may be a political issue. Um, and again, that's not for me to decide or to talk about. For me, it's just about treating people like human beings. So, Antonio, we're speaking with uh, Antonio Fernandez, who is the president, chief executive officer of, officer of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of San Antonio. And we're speaking about the surge of migrants entering the United States, uh, most recently from Venezuela, even though they may not have been most recently in Venezuela, but have been in neighboring countries, maybe primarily Colombia, but now are making their way north to to the United States. Um, Antonio, um, given Title 42, the backlog, uh, people in Mexico, does anybody have any estimate uh, how many people are kind of on the Mexican side of the border who are potentially those who want to enter the United States? I have not received any numbers lately, but um, the Texas bishops meet on a regular basis with the Mexican bishops in the border with Texas. And there was last conversation that I 
that I heard before, it was maybe like 70,000 at one time. And this was maybe three or four months ago. But that was 70,000 people waiting at the borders. Okay. So the, the number varies. Could be higher now, it could be lower. But we know, and that's the good thing about, about Catholic Church and Catholic Charities and Caritas, that we have constant communication on both sides of the border. So we knew in Nuevo Laredo, um, the town in Mexico that is next to Laredo, there was 4,000 people from Haiti, you know, maybe three, three weeks ago. Um, two days later, we started thinking, okay, how do we help these people? And then they have migrated to El Paso, to West. So that is one of the wonderful things that we have is the communication with other entities who want to help like we do. So, so we, we can see those migrant patterns and help us be very prepared. Sometimes like what happened with the 14,000 people in, in uh, the Rio, uh, we don't have enough time to help, but at least we can try. It, it, it certainly is a situation in which is, is overwhelming. Um, you know, we can't solve every problem, but from your perspective, what are some of the things that should be being done in order to deal with the crisis by, say, by the government? What are some of the programs, the policies, the resources? From your perspective, what should we be doing as a society or as a, as a, as a government to, to kind of deal with this crisis? So really good point, and, and, and you emphasize, and I want to emphasize from my point of view, it has nothing to do with Catholic Church or the diocese. Right. My point of view, these people come here to work. Right. We think 99% they have clear goal. Come to the U.S., make money, have a better life for me and my families in wherever they are. I believe if this we will be allowed to work quicker, we'll be able to help the country in many different ways. And then that's what they want to do. So helping them get a job quicker will be so much beneficial for all of us. Um, and that's what they want. I mean, I, you know, two, last year we had a, a 2,000 kids at Primo Coliseum. And, you know, there was, it, it was huge. It's, you know, Catholic Church running a shelter for 2,000 people. You, you don't see that often. Um, you know, there was two young members, two kids who were not maybe the best people in the world. 1,900 plus were great kids, you know, with that dream of coming to America to work and um, have a better life. So, so I believe if we will be able to get jobs to these people, it will help all those jobs that now that no one wants in the United States. I mean, like how many job openings we have in many capital charities and many companies. So I hear that over and over. It's like, we just want to work. And I'm telling them, it's like, please don't go to work. You don't. Get your legal status fixed first. Once that you have your legal status, then go to work if that's what you want, or go to school to learn English, you know. But from my point of view, that's, that will be an amazing advantage for everybody that I know. Yeah. So is the experience that you're having now, the people coming, are they families, women and children? Are they single men? What are you seeing um, coming into San Antonio, crossing the border? So... Um, a little bit of everything. So the people who are coming through Border Patrol and ICE are people from Venezuela, mostly Cubans, Colombians, and their families. Um, people who from Mexico who are crossing, like the ones who actually cross, um, and they were in the trailers that you may be aware of, the 53 people who died, right. and 11 people went to the hospital. 
those were like mostly single, uh, single people. So those were people from Mexico and Guatemala. I think there was two, two uh, people from Honduras. So it depends on how they cross the border. Um, but it's a little bit of to be honest with you. Yeah, and we have, as you know, Antonio, here in New York, in the past probably two or three weeks, we have had hundreds, probably over 500 people showing up at our Catholic Charities office in New York. And our experience for the first period of time is that 90, 95% of them were single young adult males from Venezuela. Mm -hmm. That we we didn't see families, we didn't see that. Now, in the past three or four days, we are seeing more families. Mm -hmm. We are seeing women with children. Um, I actually just a short time ago saw a a one-year-old baby who was with with the mom who was there. So we're seeing more families, but originally it was almost all single men. And still we're seeing a lot of single men. These uh, um, people from Venezuela talking to them almost daily, I hear they want to go to New York, New Jersey, and Florida. Those are the three main destinations they have. All days, almost 95% of the people who come to San Antonio will have a sponsor, will have a, a godmother, a brother, an uncle, a padrino, whoever. These days, it's close to 50%. That means that we have 50% of people who are just coming to America for a better life. Yeah. Um, uh, my perception, again, New York is, you know, the American dream. is the city where people think they can make everything. You know? yeah. uh, so for us, if a person says we're going to New York, can we get you a ticket? Like, we'll get you a ticket to New York. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and it's very interesting what you say, Antonio, and it, it's, our experience is very much the same. One is the men who come here, they want to work. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for, for a job. The other thing that, that is a little bit surprising to us, not too surprising, is the fact that there, prior to this, there's not a substantial Venezuelan community in New York. You know, it, it's one of the few countries where we don't have much. I can tell you neighborhoods in which there are a lot of people from Colombia. I can tell you where there are Ecuadorians. I can tell you where there are people from El Salvador. But we do not have many people living in New York from Venezuela. So that's a little bit different because immigrants usually where somebody has a root, then the next person comes and you build up a community. But there's not much of a community here at the moment. Yeah, I don't know if there is a Venezuelan community in any place in the United States, to be honest. Miami a little bit. So Miami is being, we still have tons of Cubans. Cubans come to San Antonio. In the old days, we go directly from, from Cuba to, I guess, the Keys, and they go up. But now it's easier for them to actually go to Mexico. Now, Mexico has a policy not allowing Cubans going directly to Mexico. So now Cubans are going to South America to go up north because it's separate. It's crazy. Um, and they're going to Cuba. Most Venezuelans that we have, they actually are going to, closest to Orlando, North Florida. But for whatever reason, they're still going to go to New Jersey and, and New York. So yeah. it's interesting. You know, the, the, the Africans go to Portland, 
could have made. Um, you know, the Cubans, 99% of them will go to Houston, then go to Florida. Um, Colombians are all over the place. Mexicans are all over the place. Uh, but we see some of those patterns of behavior from different countries. And, and it, it does make sense to some degree. Yeah. So Antonio Fernandez, who is the executive director, the chief CEO, the president of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of San Antonio, um, I want to thank you for the work that you and your staff are doing, the tremendous amount of work. Uh, and so just thank you so much for that. And really, thank you so much for taking the time to be to kind of be with us on Just Love. And you know, anything we can do, just let us know. And thanks for sharing uh, what's going on. Thank you, Monsignor. And you're absolutely right. Again, uh, this is about employees. We have great employees and the people who are coming are coming 24-7. And we mean now we have employees 24-7. Um, right. So we welcome the stranger. And I think we take that mission seriously. Okay. Uh, and that is a vision also that we have from our bishop. So we are very happy to do so. Great. Antonio uh, Fernandez, uh, CEO, Catholic Charities uh, San Antonio. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Monsignor. Tom, I think we will take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan.
do just love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Uh, we talk about what's going on in the world. We talk about it from the perspective of the values that are important to us, primarily the dignity of the human person. We talk to about the concern with family, solidarity, particular attention to those who are uh, most poor and most struggling. So it is a variety of values centered around the dignity of the human person, but also um, from, um, and we look at anything going on in the world through those those perspectives and the crisis of the upsurge of migrants coming into the country, um, fleeing persecution, oppression, poverty in other countries is is tremendous these days. And Catholic charities throughout the country have been responding to that. We're going to turn now to a different topic, another topic which is very important. It's a topic about how do we figure out how do we elect our uh, government officials and how do we have fair and good representation. So I am delighted that we have as our guest a professor, uh, Jeffrey Weiss, who is a lawyer. He's uh, at New York Law School, but I have come to know and appreciate kind of the wisdom and the advice of, of Jeffrey Weiss from his work as special counsel to the New York City Redistricting Commission. So I'm really, really delighted to invite um, uh, Jeff Weiss as our guest on Just Love today. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us and taking the time to it's kind of share with our listeners your experience, your expertise. It's a pleasure to be with you, Monsignor. Great. So, Jeff, this whole issue of redistricting, as I've learned, is that I don't know anything about it. Yeah. And But there are people like yourselves who know everything about it. And But it's a little bit of an esoteric kind of, um, I'm going to call it a hobby, but, a, but an esoteric kind of thing. How did you yourself uh, get interested and involved in the issue of how do we draw these funny districts so that we kind of elect people at various levels of government? Give our listeners just a little bit of your well, own background. I can put it one of two ways. The first is that when I was growing up uh, just outside New York City on Long Island, I would ride my bike up and down the major roads to gas stations in a time when they used to give out free roadmaps. And I collected lots and lots of roadmaps. Uh, but I think more seriously, uh, I was representing the New York State Assembly in Washington, D.C. in the late 1970s. And uh for the, for the Democrats at that point, who had never controlled the legislature during a redistricting cycle. So I was sent out to the Census Bureau uh, to find out what's this all about. Uh, I was still in law school at the time. This is 1978 or so. Uh, New York, as a result of the 1980 census, lost five congressional districts. And I was put in the catbird seat in helping the state assembly develop uh, the new lines for both the state legislature and the Congress. And I've been working at it ever since across the country. But New York has been more or less my, my home base. Um, I know um, redistricting gets a bad name. It gets a bad name because 
uh, everybody thinks it's always so partisan and everybody is out to kind of get everybody else. But it's a lot more complicated and a lot more kind of professional than that, isn't it? It is. Redistricting gets a bad name when uh, politicians go overboard in drawing lines for themselves, uh, picking their voters, so to speak, instead of the voters having a chance to pick their elected representatives the other way around. And when you get too greedy, uh, you overreach too much in drawing districts to favor yourself, the public uh, rejects that. We've seen a lot of uh, of public focus, media focus on redistricting uh, in the last decade or so, more so this year, yet redistricting is a building block of our uh, of our democracy. Uh, you, know, you look outside your window, the roads, the streets, the hospitals, the, the parks, the senior centers, everything is really dependent in, in public service on who delivers the services to you, who represents you in Washington, in your uh, state capitol, in the city hall, county government, and that all depends on how the lines are drawn and who represents your community. So redistricting is really something very important to everybody. So, so Jeff, you use a little phrase which, um, which kind of got my ears perked up as a New Yorker. You said people don't like it when politicians get too greedy. Is it okay if they get a little greedy? Well, you know... <laughs> Redistricting is a zero-sum game in that one party is going to end up controlling your, your legislative chamber, the Republicans or the Democrats. Right. Uh, and you can draw a plan that could benefit your party, but you shouldn't do so in a way that overreaches, that is too greedy, that uh, that almost wipes out the ability of the minority party to elect candidates, to be more fair about it, that we want to um, make sure that the public is well-represented. And you can do that in a very fair, transparent, open process and just not go overboard. So, Jeff, uh, that reminds me of a book that I read many, many years ago. I'm not sure I'm going to get it right, but it may have been um, tweet, somebody of Tammany Hall. And, and, and in it, one of the, the politicians says he is so mad at politicians who engage in dishonest graft. They give all politicians a bad name. And he says in the book, he says, there's so much honest graft. Why do we have to engage in dishonest graft? I thought it was just kind of a wonderful phrase uh, that, that he kind of came, you know, came, came up with. It, it, I guess it's maybe you can push the envelope a little bit but you can't rip the envelope. Well, that reminds me of another um, uh, historic New York political figure of the of a century past, uh, George Washington Plunkett. And he that's wrote, who it is. That's what yeah. that's yeah. one of his quotes was, I seen my chances and I took them. And yep. I think that's where you can go overboard. Yeah. Because there could be too many chances. Yes, and it, exactly. It was the Plunkett was the one who was quoted in the book about the honest and the dishonest graft. That was it, and uh, so it, it is. Um, you know, it, I'll, I'll say something about, and you know, we've met through this uh, commission. Oh, excuse me. Um, you know, one of the things that I like about the process, and maybe you could describe it for our listeners. Because 
It seems like it was a little bit different, the work in New York City, the process than the redistricting in Albany, which I think the court turned. Can you talk to us about the different ways that plans can get approved? Sure. The, the basic way uh, redistricting has been done for decades is where legislatures draw lines for their own chambers, their own legislative bodies, that you simply hold hearings, have a committee, draw the lines, pass them, uh, governor signs them. That's the traditional method. And we've seen over time uh, more and more public attention on redistricting and the creation of uh, commissions to take the line drawing one step outside of the politicians drawing the lines for themselves. Uh, in New York State, just to give you the classic example, the state legislature from the 1790s until uh, the 2010s drew their own lines with very little guidance or criteria, rules of the game. And in 2014, the voters approved, New York State's voters approved uh, a constitutional amendment to create an advisory commission. Other states like California, Michigan, uh, Arizona created completely independent commissions. But in New York, uh, we have a commission that was developed to report or advise the legislature with model plans that the legislature could accept. And not to get into the weeds on what happened in New York, but that, that process basically failed. Uh, and a court ended up drawing the congressional and state Senate lines, and the assembly future is still to be decided by a court uh, sometime next month, although elections are proceeding this year. Um, New York City is different. Uh, in the late 1980s, after the U.S. Supreme Court held that the old city council and uh, another body called the Board of Estimate uh, were unconstitutional, they violated the one-person, one-vote population equality rules, uh, a new council was developed. And in doing so, the city charter uh, uh, created a commission, the one that you serve on now. And that commission has members who do the work more or less on their own, although they're appointed by the political leadership. The final product that the New York City Commission puts out does, you know, is a final product. It goes to the city clerk, um, and then it becomes certified as the plan. The city council can review it and make suggestions, but the commission has the final word. And the commission is also subject to various criteria that are rank ordered in, in, by priority. So it's a much different process in New York City than New York State. Uh, New York State has been litigated every decade for decades after the line drawing, New York City has not seen a single lawsuit against its plans in over 20 years. Well, you know, Jeff, um, I, you know, until I was on this commission, I didn't know some of some of those distinctions that you've just made. But it did stream to me from observing what was going on in New York State, that it certainly wouldn't be a way that I would have written the rules and the process if they asked me to to write them because you know even though there was an independent commission you know at the end of the day the legislature you know could reject what they what they wanted so it 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 struck me as a it was almost created in a way to create difficulties uh, not to get too partisan about it, but the New York State process was, in my view, designed to fail. That's just what happened. 
The New York City process was not designed to fail and has been quite successful uh, in 2000. After 2010, it's worked. Well, and, you know, one of the things I will say and I'll say to our, our listeners, I have been just so impressed by the participation of community members um, in testifying, offering their opinions, et cetera, et cetera. And again, I'm a New Yorker. So, I mean, you know, we had over 500 people that have testified already, and I'm sure there will be more. And, you know, I think 95% of the testimony was real serious, real, real good. And then you had a little bit of it that was entertaining, which is kind of brings a little levity to, to the situation. But what was interesting to me is that whether you were somebody who owned a two-family house in Queens, you rented an apartment in Manhattan or someplace in Brooklyn, you were testifying along with the elected officials, along with the Everybody got to talk about it. And there wasn't a privileged place in listening because somebody was a council member. They got their say. Other people got their say. So I was really impressed with the participation. I got a little tired because they were long sessions, but it struck me as, as, as not a bad process. Well, I've seen across the country and other states I've, I've worked in, there's much more uh, public focus, attention on, and interest on redistricting than ever before. Uh, I think the internet, websites, uh, shows such as this one have you know, uh, brought much greater attention on the line showing process and the press is watching. Yeah. And, uh, in, in other states, you know, not New York, we always have uh, lawsuits that end up going up to the U.S. Supreme Court that often change the rules of the game. Yeah. So for our listeners, I mean, and I know there are different criteria, maybe in different places, but since I've learned a little bit that a lot of the criteria do flow from court decisions or surrounding the Voting Rights Act, et cetera. What are, it may be different in different places, but what are some of the major criteria that are used when you try to redistrict? Well, I'll put them in three or four categories. Okay. On the top, you've got the federal requirement, one person, one vote, U.S. Constitution. Uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that all legislative districts, whether it's Congress, state legislature, city council, town board, all districts must have equal population so that one person's vote is equal in a legislative body to another person's vote. One person, one vote. Uh, so it's population equality. The second uh, federal requirement is to, one, comply with the Federal Voting Rights Act to avoid minority vote dilution in instances where you have really high levels of racially polarized voting or where minority candidates cannot win, where they might make up a majority of a district, but the white voters essentially uh, defeat their, um, their chances to win. That's called vote dilution, and the Voting Rights Act is designed to combat that. And then on the other hand, we have the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that that uh, prevents racial gerrymandering or the packing of too many minority voters into a district that minimizes their effectiveness in several districts. So we have the federal criteria. Uh, then we have often state criteria and then local criteria. 
Uh, in New York City, for instance, the city charter has very specific criteria, and most governments across the country have similar criteria uh, that will deal with drawing compact districts, you know, not to create 56-sided Rorschach test-looking shape districts, uh, that districts be contiguous, that you can travel from one end to the other and not leave the district. Uh, communities of interest is probably the fastest growing criteria that people who live in like-minded communities, whether they're socioeconomic, racial, uh, ethnic, academic, medical, that people can be grouped into a district that have common interests together. Uh, you can also, as criteria, consider the cores of existing districts, and you also have rules that uh, would prevent favoring or disfavoring political parties or candidates, so-called uh, gerrymandering. And each state, each city you know, could be different, but those are generally the basic principles that are followed. We call them criteria. Jeff, I think that was very, um, very helpful and very clear. And I know you and I have had some conversations and I, I think I understand the general thrust. And I think you know, this is just me speaking personally. I think those criteria are very, very helpful. And I have to say some of what I heard spoken, I mean, I thought the testimony was generally very, very good. What I always am a little concerned about, especially in the divisive world that we live in, that when we try to respect communities of interest, we also have some form, forum in which communities of disinterest have to interact with each other so that we're not just talking to ourselves and with everybody who's like ourselves, but how do we take advantage of the rich diversity in New York City in which we all can learn from one another and we're not just talking to ourselves? I don't have the solution. Yeah. That's a balancing act because you've got to draw districts that are equally populous. So that's really the bottom line is that uh, the districts all have to be relatively of the same population. And that might you know, end up meaning that a community might be divided because you can't please everybody, every part of your state or city. Right. Uh, so, you know, there are uh, considerations there. We have the minority voting interest considerations where we can't dilute or pack the minority vote depending on local conditions. Uh, so, you know, you can't always uh, keep the cores of the pre-existing districts. So these are public policy decisions that uh, commissions, that legislators eventually have to make. But if you draw a plan that follows the criteria for the most part, you're likely to uh, withstand any challenge later. But redistricting never pleases everybody all the time. It can't. <laughs> Yeah. So, Jeff, thank you so much for your sharing this. I know, again, I learned more. I knew some of it from our previous conversation, but I'm sure our listeners were uh, learned a whole lot about the importance of redistricting and how it is a very important way to ensure that votes are taken seriously. You know, probably I would say, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, the overriding criteria is one person, one vote, and trying to make sure that those districts are pretty close to each other in, in numbers, and then working in the other criteria 
uh, to, to do that. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, on it's been my pleasure. And to your listeners, I'll just close by saying that while nearly every congressional plan and state legislative plan has been drawn across the country, this is the year where city councils, uh, town boards, village boards are all being redrawn. So if you're interested in learning what's happening uh, where you live, take a look at your local government and see what's going on there and show up at the hearings and testify and make yourself part of the process. It's my pleasure to be on with you today. Jeff, and the one thing I would also add for our listeners that in a number of jurisdictions, some of the uh, universities and some other places have come up with pretty pretty sophisticated and user-friendly tools that are online where you can kind of play your own commissioner and you can kind of draw your own lines the way you would like it. It's a lot of fun doing it. And it's also instructive because you can see how lines get drawn. So anyway, Jeff Weiss, who is a adjunct professor, senior fellow at New York Law School, special counsel to the New York City Redistricting Commission, Thank you for being with us on Just. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Great. Tom, I think we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us when we come back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Um, thank you for being with us this week. Um, you know, discussing the situation at the border is very, very critical because it is a humanitarian issue that we are dealing with. But it does relate to redistricting, which we also talked about. Because at the end of the day, while charitable and nonprofit organizations like Catholic Charities, we are great. We are very, very privileged, blessed. And we want to respond to those humanitarian needs. But at the end of the day, in addition to that, there is a need for the government for good public policies to deal with these crises. So thank you for being with us on Just Love. Just do it. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Our world will be more just. It will be more compassionate. Join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.